You're listening to Movers and Shakers, a podcast about living with Parkinson's. The show is generously sponsored by Boardwave, an exclusive European networking community for software CEOs. Boardwave is a passionate supporter of Cure Parkinson's. For more details on the charity's progress around research and its fundraising, please visit cureparkinson's.org.uk. Welcome to Movers and Shakers. We're back in the pub once again for a bit of a chat and a bit of a moan. In fact, this week we're moaning far more than usual, with rather good reason. And Mark's going to explain why. Because the topic of the day is bedside manner, which in many cases seems to be almost non-existent of doctors, consultants and particularly neurologists. As one of our correspondents described it, it's a nightmare. In fact, what struck me very early on was how many letters in our postbag were about this, about breaking the bad news, how badly it was done, and also how the follow-up wasn't really there. One person said they felt lonely and cold. They were told, you have Parkinson's, can you go outside and wait for the nurse to take blood? That was it. That's absolutely typical. Yep, and we've all had bad experiences ourselves. So what we'll be doing in a sec is going round the table and hearing those experiences very briefly... And I'd like everyone to give me a mark out of 10, please, for how they feel their neurologist behaved in terms of bedside manner. But first, let's see who's here. We're here, Mark Waddell. And Gillian Lacey-Solomar. Uh, Nicholas Mostyn. Rory Kethlin-Jones. Jeremy Paxman. Paul Mayhew-Archer. Let's start with you, Nick, because I think you were the most optimistic in terms of how you felt about your neurologist. Well, uh, no, I was sent to a neurologist who will remain nameless, was not the one in, who is now looking after me, Professor Chowdhury. The blessed Professor the, Chowdhury. The saint Professor Chowdhury. <laughs> but the original one told me, having diagnosed me with the DAT scan, having been read out, I said, well, what does this mean? And uh, he said, it's likely you'll be in a wheelchair in five years' time. And I said... I beg your pardon, would you? Mm. What? I said, in fact, it was a little... Were you a bit forceful? Well, yes. Mm. I said, what do you mean by it's likely I'll be in a wheelchair? And he said, there's a 20% chance. I said, well, that's not likely, that's unlikely. I was very unimpressed, and after that I went uh, straight to Professor Chowdhury. He was an enumerate neurologist. He didn't know much about the laws of probability. Right. So, in terms of enumerate or numerate, what's the number out of 10 for his bedside manner? I would give him none. Oh, None. Okay. Right. Ah. Ooh, and Professor, but we have Professor Chowdhury. Need Pua from now. the judge. Yeah. Yes, Professor Chowdhury then, because you have him as well. But Professor Chowdhury, I would give him nine. Brilliant. Rory. My, mine's in two parts. My original diagnosis, so I went to my GP and then they said, you, we're going to send you to a neurologist. Waited four months, as you do. Pitched up at St Mary's Paddington and saw a nice woman who was not the consultant, but was what is still called a junior doctor. She stretched my arms a bit, made me walk around a bit, did a bit of this, that and the other, and said, oh yes, classic case of Parkinsonism, which felt a little cold to me. I, d- I didn't walk out feeling I'd been nurtured there. Uh, no, I was very similar. On the Parkinsonian scale, I was told, which was mm. equally uninformative. So, so that wasn't yes. very good. But then when I met my consultant for the first time, who was a, a woman called Dr Joanna Ball, she was lovely, and what I, one of the things I particularly liked her, she, she was the only doctor I'd seen recently who appeared to be almost as old as I am. <laughs> uh, and sadly, she then retired. And I got another young doctor who is also very good and very professional. My main complaint there is I don't get to see them enough. So overall, give me a mark. For the initial consultation, the initial news breaking, which is quite important, as we all know, I'd say, I'd say five out of ten. 
and ongoing? Ongoing, seven or eight, I'd say. Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I think I'm, I, I did pretty well. I was very lucky. I've got a really good guy called Angus Kennedy who was very straightforward. Mm-hmm. And he said to me from the start, I think you've got Parkinson's. I went in, as you know, with having just fallen over mm. again. He just said, I think you've got Parkinson's. And I thought that was a straight, straightforward way to tell me, and I liked him for it. And you don't think the fact that you're Jeremy Paxman had anything to do with him being terrified and therefore being a little more attentive than normal? I have no idea at all. Mm. Nobody's terrified of Jeremy. No, no. <laughs> oh, Mark, out of ten, then? Bedside manner, I'd say it was about six. Yeah. And I'd say ongoing treatment about... Well, I've just come from seeing him now, so I'm going to probably wait and see... If you can't wait, <laughs> oh, see, I'm Give me a number. Seven. Seven. Okay. Paul. Yes. Well, I went to see the neurologist. I was advised to go to a neurologist, and he did a few things like watch me walking up and down, and then he prodded me from the front and he tugged me from behind, and then he said, "Yep, that's Parkinson's." I wasn't given very much advice as to what to do apart from go back in a, in a year's time. Well, that's the overwhelming characteristic of the letters that we've received. They're very, very uninformative, these guys. In fact, we're doing their job, aren't we, really? We yeah, are. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's what I would say about my experience, mm. was that because a friend diagnosed me, so I self-diagnosed and persuaded the consultant, who had a very warm and friendly manner, very nice, mm-hmm. but hardly any backup, you know. Here are the drugs. Right. Drugs. Some drugs later. Asked about exercise. Said, asked Parkinson's nurse. And your numbers then? Four. Four. And ongoing? Four. Four. Really? Okay. And Paul, you're the only one who didn't give me that. That is six. And ongoing? Ongoing. Well, I now have a a different uh, neurologist who is absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. And so I'd give her ten. Wow. Okay. So, my turn. I went through a terrible, as I was saying, diagnosis, and then I went to see someone else who threw me out after 10 minutes. Very, she was very sweet, but after 10 minutes she said, that's it, we have no more time. And I had loads of questions. Then I saw two more people who, again, there was one thing wrong or another thing wrong. And then I got to my present neurologist, who is very, very good indeed. And, of course, it's no coincidence at all, or is it? that he's joining us today, but I shall introduce him in a moment. So, for me, I would say initial was about four, and ongoing is, let's say, nine and a half. I was contacted because of this podcast by somebody who was a very senior lawyer, funny enough, but was in quite a bad state, and he'd had his second consultation with a very distinguished neurologist, and he'd been told that his, his pills were going to be up, his, the dose was going to be upped. Mm-hmm. And he didn't understand why. And I said, well, this is quite common. And he said, but he, I just wanted to know why was it happening and have it explained to me. And the man said to him, listen, A, I haven't got time. And B, you wouldn't understand it anyway. And that was it. Oh, my God. That's another nil pointer. Yeah. So if we grind through those numbers, it's 4.2 is the average for us for the initial consultation. And then 7.8 on an ongoing basis, which sounds about right from what you were all saying. It's not just us who are finding this. As you were saying, Jeremy, it's a very, very common grumble about having Parkinson's. And there are three letters we've chosen. Nick is going to read the first. Yes, the first is from a doctor who was diagnosed in 2021 after she recognised 
symptoms in herself from her experience as a consultant in palliative care. And she was referred to a movement disorder clinic. And she writes this. In my mind, such a clinic would be multidisciplinary and informative or practical. In reality, I only saw the consultant who agreed with the clinical diagnosis, gave me the medical talk and prescribed tablets. There was no written information or contact number and a referral to a specialist nurse took four months. There was no advice about exercise and I was told that the Parkinson's community was strong and would provide any information and support I need. I was shocked by this experience and I felt abandoned. A follow-up at six months with no recourse to ask questions seems appalling and she goes on to write that it seems so obvious that a multidisciplinary approach is needed for such a strange multifaceted condition including both traditional medicine and optimism and self-empowerment and she concludes thus overall i feel my experience of the nhs has been very poor which makes me very sad having worked all my life in the nhs Mm. there's a lot of those there's a lot of those letters from people in the NHS who are ashamed. Well, funnily enough, Jeremy, I've got another one. Our second letter is from David, a neurologist of all things, focusing on stroke research for Parkinson's disease, and he himself has had Parkinson's disease for over 10 years. I am particularly passionate about psychological support and care around the time of diagnosis and believe that the way this is handled can actually influence the course of the condition. Many of you described the cold, dispassionate, empathy-lacking delivery of the diagnosis by neurologists with the see you in a year. (laughs) I believe this is totally unacceptable. Vulnerable, unsupported people, especially if they hold misconceptions about PD, can fall into a downward spiral of depression, only saved from suicide by the apathy, as you point out. That's extraordinary coming from a professional in this very field. And then we have the last one, which is... A very brief one from somebody who isn't a professional, but she says... The neurologist told my husband he should eat carrots every night with his pills. Needless to say, we moved hospitals and opened a carrot farm. Is, is, no, no, no. Is, no, that, that, not good, is that not good advice, carrots, carrots with pills? Well, if I, I got the sense that was the only advice that they were given. <laughs> and it may well be good advice, but I think on its own probably doesn't tell you that much. So, having uh, heard all those complaints and having our own average just above four, we have the opportunity to grill a couple of senior doctors. And we will start with somebody who really represents the front line of care. He is, or just was, he just finished in May, the president of the Association of British Neurologists, Professor Tom Warner, who, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say, is actually my neurologist. Thank you very much for coming in. And especially since you have been warned that shortly you will play the lamb to the slaughter role with Jeremy unleashed upon you, and he was not a happy man. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about some of the facts. You have now been the head of this for three years, and you've just come recently from a conference of neurologists. Was bedside manner even an agenda point on that conference? There was no bedside manner lecture. There was quality lectures where we talk about how we get the best and how we treat people best, and actually just turning to some of the points that multiple mm. disciplinary teams are something that very much are thought to be a good thing. Mm. In fact, there's been, over the last couple of years, there's been a body which were put together by NHS England about how to deal with different conditions and a pathway for Parkinson's disease has been published. It's sitting in the Department of Health and, and it recommends that all regions have a multidisciplinary clinic for Parkinson's patients. As yet, nothing has come of that. But I think in the ideal world, we would all want a multidisciplinary clinic. But 
as we know, it's not an ideal world at the moment. What, what sort of disciplines? What, what are we talking? I mean, early on, it's variable, but psychology is really important. I agree with what people said. Physiotherapists are quite... Sometimes people, when you see them for the very first time, and it's very mild, and sometimes you even struggle to decide that's what they've got, which is one of the difficult situations. But physios are very good. A, they speak English better than neurologists often do. <laughs> Not difficult. Uh, well, no. well sort of ordinary English. And I think we can't get away from that the Parkinson's is not just a physical condition it attacks various parts of you from anxiety we know anxiety and depression is much higher in people with Parkinson's one because they're being told they've got this diagnosis but also it's a biological part of the condition as well so it's a high percentage of people get develop anxiety and depression as part of the Parkinson's and that needs to be dealt with so psychology is absolutely crucial and there is some moves for it to become more available. The problem is the enormity of the problem. Parkinson's is a common condition. Neurologists aren't very common. How do you become a neurologist? You start off doing general medical training. So any old fool could do it. Any old fool. Well, you're sitting in front of one. But I never thought I'd become a neurologist because when I was a trainee, it was a very academic specialty and was predominantly male-dominated, male very smart people. I got under the bar and became a neurologist but it's changed quite a lot we, I mean what's nice to see now amongst our trainees and new consultants now as you said half of them are women which is a good thing about a third of them represent the ethnic minorities that we see in our countries and they get trained in a different way as medical students as trainees the things that would never happen to when I was training you get videoed doing a consultation with a patient as a student and then that gets dissected and say well why did you do this could you have done it differently what do you think was wrong about your approach and that happens as trainees as well so multidisciplinary is a, is a crucial way for for most neurological conditions not just Parkinson's it's because they've they affect many facets well, why do you think there is a problem in the first place because some people have suggested to me that it's a particularly neurologist problem in that you do have to be very very clever you do have to be rather academic and somebody who's saying medicine is both an art and a science one one consultant and you're at the science end, bedside manner is at the art end, a fuzzy, fuzzy skill. Bedside manner is also a personal thing. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone is different. I mean, I, I like to think I get on with the majority of my patients. I know there are some who think I'm an idiot. And that's human nature. But it's hard to teach empathy to people who aren't empathetic. Mm. It seems to me that annual frequency of consultation is wholly inadequate because apart from anything else the drug cocktail would be completely out of date by the time the year comes around. I'm fortunate in that I see Professor Chowdhury once a quarter but there are not enough neurologists to there, do that. There are not. Yeah. The fact is if you look at Western Europe, take Norway, they have one neurologist for 14,000 population. In the UK it's one for 97,000 population. Oh, that is um, shocking, so isn't it? we are under neurologists and if you go into hospital with a broken leg, you'll see an orthopaedic specialist. If you go into hospital with chest pain, you'll see a cardiologist. If you go into hospital with an acute neurological problem, you'll probably be seen by someone who's not a neurologist because there just aren't enough of them, um, who hasn't trained in neurology. And then hopefully if you get admitted, you might see a neurologist during your stay or you'll be seeing one soon after. And I think that's the problem. I have the privilege of seeing both ends of the scale for the first 15 years of my senior career. I was working in district general outside London, I would do a clinic where it's general, but I would see some Parkinson's patients in it. 
and I would see between in the morning, so four-hour session, between eight and ten new patients I'd never seen before, and six to eight follow-ups. So it would be 20 minutes for a new patient, 10 minutes for a follow-up, and that was just to stop the waiting list growing too much. I am really lucky now because I've moved, I'm at the National Hospital where we have a bit more time. So I do a clinic of 18 patients, which is similar, but I will have a trainee doctor who I'm training and they'll come in and we'll talk with the patient about that. And then I'll probably have a clinical fellow who's usually a fairly experienced trainee who knows their stuff. And we'll see the same number of patients I'm seeing on my own. And we have the advantage of what you're saying is time. So I, mm, I'm involved no. in, in an experiment which is called home-based care, which is working down in the West Country, where you get to see the consultant in a, in a more flexible way. Sometimes you may see them on a video call. Sometimes you, you may get a nurse intervening. But you get a more constant level of interaction. Is that the way to go? I think it is. We're never going to be able to, in the, in the next 10 years, get the number of neurologists up to what we think it should be. And it actually should be the number of neurospecialists. I mean, neurologists aren't a panacea. Mm. A really good Parkinson's nurse knows, yes. knows his yes. or her onions is equally good and potentially quite often more empathetic. And, you know, having someone, a Parkinson's physiotherapists who are rare on the ground. Neurophysios are another rare finding in this country and we could do more of those. Neuro-occupational therapists, neuro-speech therapists who we've seen. So mm. neuro is short compared to most other medical specialties. So far as you're aware, are there any national standards for dealing with the initial diagnoses, managing the initial diagnoses? Or are these left to the individual discretion of the neurologist? Well, I mean, there, there are standards about how long you should spend with a new patient. I mean, we, we say you should have a minimum of half an hour when you see it. Because you've got to, A, get to know them. When a patient comes with anxiety, anyone going to see any doctor is anxious, mm. including a doctor seeing a doctor. And if you're seeing a neurologist, it seems, people seem even more anxious. So the first thing you've got to do is get over that hurdle. And then you've got to listen. Haven't you also got to find out whether they have got Parkinson's? You do, but part of that is listening. I mean, as a neurologist, I mean, we are actually a very clinical specialty. More of what we, we often make the diagnosis on the story, and then we use examination hopefully to confirm what we found or make us think, all oh, right, we got that wrong, mm. we must look at something else. And then you think about all the tests you could do. As far as my books, no patient leaves happy if they don't think they've been listened to. So it's really no, important. No, I think you are very good at listening, but... It doesn't extend to your colleagues, clearly, does it? A lot of them. I mean, we, w we wouldn't be at that 4.2 if people did listen. What could that be done? I mean, I have to say, I probably, when I had 20 minutes for a complicated new patient mm. at a district general, I probably wasn't such a good listener because, we, you know, you had four people waiting outside to be seen as well. Mm. I mean, this is what it is really like in district general hospitals. This is, the, this is the real world now. For people like me who've got a bit older and work in a tertiary centre, we have more luxury of time. But, but there doesn't even seem to be the ability to give people resources to say, why don't you go here, here and here? And then you'll find a lot more of the information there. Obviously, the, the key lesson should be, why don't you listen to the Movers and Shakers podcast? Because that, <laughs> that would be... But also, the NHS guidelines, they say, yeah. you know, being told you have Parkinson's disease can be emotionally distressing and the news can often be difficult to take in. This means it's important that you have the support of your family and a care team who will be able to help you come to terms with the diagnosis. I've got my family, luckily, but we can't all have a family. Yeah. And unless we're pointed in the direction of the local groups of Parkinson's UK, which often we're not, and we don't have necessarily a care team, I don't know what a care team is. I mean, well, the Parkinson's UK have set national criteria. Now, they're not mandatory, not enforced, but they feel, and rightly so, anyone given a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, I mean, the first thing we know about any medical consultation is the person who leaves it will probably only remember a third of what they've been told. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so mm. you, there's a balance between overloading them with lots of facts and actually, A, talking about the diagnosis, and I think what people know is 
what's what's going to happen now, what's going to happen next, and when am I going to be seen again? Parkinson's UK feel that they should every new diagnosis should be seen then or spoken to by a Parkinson's nurse, specialist nurse, who ideally would be there to follow them in, the, in their career with Parkinson's. But there um, aren't any Parkinson's nurses. Exactly. There, there are, are a few. And there are lots of gaps around the country. There are, there are spaces, you know, there are empty Is jobs. it up to individual health authorities? Uh, yes, and they will have their own individual priorities depending on what's well, the rest. Well, that's uh, crap. really bully yep. to see them. I mean... I've seen my Parkinson's nurse once and I was told you'd be put on a rotor to come back. I haven't heard anything. I've been meaning to ring up. But you have to really push for it. Yeah. It's a hopeless system if the hospital trust in the West Country has no Parkinson's nurses but one in Norfolk has. But that, that's the nature. We're talking about the NHS. Yeah. 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 And the nurses are often funded I'm by the charity. I'm allowed to speak controversial now. Uh, <laughs> some are funded by charities, some are funded by the hospital trust and some are funded by the community NHS trust. The two don't always mix so well. The hospital ones say you, there are some hospitals where they'll say, we will only see patients with Parkinson's who are seen by our consultants in our hospital. And there are others who will say, well, we'll see anybody who lives in our area, which strikes me as the most appropriate course of action. Mm. It's about resourcing. And I don't want to, we can all moan about resources and the state of the NHS. Um, everyone's moaning in the, on the press all the yeah. time, so you don't yeah, need yeah. me to moan yeah. about yeah, it. Yeah, it's we, not we, in yeah. a great state, no. and it's far worse since COVID. Since there are the charities and the people there, the least that could happen is to make sure that the leaflets yeah. are visible. Yeah, put in you know, I think that's not yeah. enough. I mean, several of these people who wrote to us said, I was told the Parkinson's community is strong. But as you said, you're in such shock when you're told to leave it up to the individual to go off and contact somebody, I think is unrealistic. I mean, we can all talk about, as you said, you know, the NHS being short on resources, but given it is short on resources, how can we improve the situation? I think if you looked at cost-effectiveness, probably the thing, I mean, yes, we want more neurologists, but actually Parkinson's nurses are cheaper and they play an incredibly important role. Mm. And, yeah. and to be honest, a lot of it is not that complicated. It is understanding why my drug regime has been changed, yeah. even just being asked about it. I mean, the, the crazy thing is you see a neurologist one year, he changes your drug, drug recipe, and it's a year later before that's assessed. That seems to be madness. I, I think if you're going to make changes, you want to see someone at a reasonable time to see whether what you've done is good or bad. Yeah. But if you were diagnosed with Parkinson's, where would you like to have it? Well, I can't say by me. I think that I've worked, the district journal I worked at, I worked with a fantastic Parkinson's nurse who backed me up and worked with me. And I think we didn't offer too bad a service between us. So I don't think it, there is one place. I mean, centres are great because centres tend to have more time. If you're lucky enough to be on the private sector, you'll get more time, although you'll still end up probably seeing an NHS Parkinson's nurse. I think that's the key point, the, the, a point of contact, and it doesn't have to be the doctor. No. I've got an eye condition. What I found great there was my, my consultant was brilliant, but there was a nurse I could ring up, and she yeah. would answer the phone, answer my questions, which would never happen with the consultants. Before I came here, I did a clinic, and we had a very quick, we had a, a team's ward round, and our Parkinson's nurse is on that, so... The people, you know, I work with any patient they see me discuss and she tells me about patients she's worried about, you know, who we have in common and we, have, we do that every week. Even though I may not have seen them, which sometimes is a good thing for the patients, I will know what's going on and we'll have discussed them whether we need to do anything. So um, we have been trying to think about a patient's charter which might help people. From your point of view, what would you put on that patient's charter? What do you think is absolutely key? For Parkinson's, which obviously we're talking about, yep. We'd like to do what we can do with all our patients to have a shorter waiting list so people can be seen sooner 
it has got to the stage. I think one year follow-ups aren't particularly useful. No. Um, it should be there should be a sort of minimum, but I think there should also be more. Well, we've got allied neuro staff, so more access to physios. Physios and psychologists are really useful, right. and yet there aren't very many of them. Mm. I mean, I'm yes. moaning about neurologist numbers because that's what I am, but it's across all the neuro specialties. If we were able to look after people in a better way, more frequently and being more flexible, that would be better for everyone in Parkinson's. All, all these things are certainly true, but how would you improve just the doctor's attitude? Because uh, it interested me, somebody said to me, well, they must be doing this every day, so no wonder they get sort of a bit blasé. But as a journalist, you get blasé, but you don't put that in the face no. of somebody you're talking to. You put it on act to I, an extent. I think it's a bit like being journalists because every single consultation is different. But I do, I do think the generation, the two generations below me, both at student and at trainee level, are learning in a very different way. I mean, when I was a trainee, often you'd just be told to get on with it. And then when you did ward rounds, you'd try and pick up what you thought were the good bits of your seniors' practice. Now there's much more. I mean, every time my registrar sees a patient, they come in, tell me about it, and then we go back and see the patient together. Um, well, that's and a very nice the trainee can then into Ed, who we want to talk to about training, and in particular... Mark has been following this up. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who do care about what's going wrong and want to put it right. But tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a consultant neurologist based in Glasgow. I, I trained up in Glasgow and got interested in Parkinson's disease through a period of research in around 2006 and then did my specialty training, became a neurologist in 2013 and have an interest in, in movement disorders in general. So I see Parkinson's patients. I do a telemedicine clinic to the Western Isles I'm involved with a uh, deep brain stimulation surgery service for all of Scotland. For the last 15 years, I've been involved with undergraduate medical teaching, which involves running a, a neurology and a bit of neurosurgery teaching for a large medical school. So first of all, my broad question, do you think something is going wrong and what's going wrong if it is? I think you can teach communication skills, but you need a, a, a background level of empathy to begin with and, and I think through through the admissions process in universities they try to weed out the the the, candidates. the psychopaths well well I wouldn't put it quite that <laughs> way but but yeah the, one, the ones where there's no clear empathy coming across in the interview we actually um, at the University of Glasgow we, we, we integrate our communication skills training from year one the students get to meet patients very early on they get taught how to I mean the most important thing that we do is is, is learn how to take a history from a patient so just learn how to actively listen to the symptoms that they're telling you. And then as they progress through the, the years of the medical school, they get more increasingly complex scenarios to do. And breaking bad news, you've all mentioned the diagnostic conversations that you had with Parkinson's disease. So that would fall in that group. But there are other types of breaking bad news scenarios that you would do as well. So, so you've got a specific course on that? Is it sort of so, like Monday morning we talk about breaking bad news? So, so there are, yeah, there are specific sessions uh, dedicated to it, but it's also integrated within clinical blocks that they have each of, of, of the years. During medical, surgical and palliative care blocks, they'll, they'll get lots of communication skills training. They get the opportunity to, to meet actors who acting as, as patients yeah, sure. and you video playing, them. playing tricky customers yeah that's right yeah you know angry scenarios is, is, is a, a useful one for the students to train on and then they can get videoed and watch themselves back and they get feedback from the rest of their group and the truth is i'm not saying that the, this is the complete answer to having doctors with good bedside manner but i think it helps i think it's more than helps i think it's extremely important but is it appraised 
you know, can you be rubbish at it? And yeah, still oh, go oh, up no, absolutely. The ranks? No, it, it forms a large part of our examinations process. So at the end of the year, when mm. you each of the years and ultimately with finals, you'll be examined on communication skills, right? And it, and you and you can fail on that. Right. There are techniques. If you're trained in how to give bad news in a, in a scenario, things which are basic, such as getting a location that you can sit down that's quiet, making sure that you know who you're speaking to, how much information that they've got, firing a warning shot, and then being being you know being gentle with telling them the, the bit of news that helps you. If you're if if, if it's one a.m. in the morning and you're on a night shift, and there's no one more senior in the in the hospital, and you've got to impart a bad diagnosis or tell them about their relative who was involved with a car accident, those are useful things to know, and it's a framework to work on. I actually think your communication skills are something that don't stop when you graduate medical school, and they certainly don't stop when you when you're a junior doctor and a trainee. Maybe, I assume that there's continual professional development. Absolutely. Also, also it's it's difficult because you can give the same news in the same way to two different patients, exactly. and they will take it in completely different. You and ways. Jeremy would be approached in a different way. Yes. I guess. I, I, but that, yeah, and you I, have I, to I, assess that within the first five minutes of them. Absolutely. So, so if you think about that, so you've got that half hour consultation. So I do I do general neurology clinics as well as movement disorder clinics, and some patients are referred in from their GP. The patient suspects that there's Parkinson's disease. They know that they've got the tremor. The GP has discussed that with them. Sometimes, you know, they'll start the consultation saying, I know this is Parkinson's disease. Other times, their symptoms are a lot more vague. And actually, the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease comes as a complete shock to them. Moreover, all the time, as you, as you say, you're, you're trying to assess how best to deliver it in that scenario and in half an hour that's a that's a tricky judgment to make especially when it's such an uncertain disease i met somebody recently who who wanted to discuss his parkinson's disease with me and seemed in a really bad way and six months later he rang me up and said it was all a mistake i was on the wrong kind of epilepsy drugs and um Mm -hmm. uh, i'm fine so diagnostically it's complicated and there is a bit of uncertainty, even with that scans and, uh, and other types of in- imaging. Even with that, there is, there is a bit of uncertainty. One of the places that really impressed me was Oxford. And they've got something called Oxford Expert Patient Tutors. They take patients, train them up and have what they call like speed dating with patients. <laughs> 30 minutes with each was quite long for a date. And then a bell rings and they go on to the next one. You know, and they were saying, you are the experts, which is... Interesting, and they've also got a very good resource, I'm told. The Movers and Shakers podcast is in their library. <laughs> but, but generally, do you think involving patients more is a good idea? Oh, oh absolutely. You know, within this group here, that the diversity in symptoms in Parkinson's disease is really wide. Yeah. You know, and that's really hard for, for medical students to get their head around. You know, if, um, neurology is, competes with cardiology, respiratory, gastroenterology, renal medicine. It's got all these different specialties to learn. And within, part, within neurology, Parkinson's disease is one of the big ones, but you've, you've got multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's disease and stroke disease and motor neuron disease. There's a lot of things to learn. And if you take one of those diseases and it's a, it has such a range of presentations, it's tricky. Meeting patients who are able to give a good account of their symptoms is the cornerstone of what we do. Yeah. Medicine, you should sit, medicine should be seen as an apprenticeship. And the more time that you spend seeing patients, whether that's in the wards or in GP practices, the, you know, the better. Are there things that could be built into the system, like when you've diagnosed someone, there should be an opportunity to meet again three months later, say, or not leave it a year? Cause no. that, 
Do you know, I agree. I, I, I see a problem with that. If I was making a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, would, the patient would always be referred into a specialist physiotherapy and a nurse specialist for their next appointment. So they've got, they, they, they will have points of contact. Yes. I mean, in the longer term, the nurse specialist is the primary point of contact, but, but they contact consultant secretaries quite frequently. If you had one final thing to say that would make a difference, again, what would that be? So I, I think as time goes on, I need more time with patients, I think. When I started as a consultant, I would spend, of that 30-minute consultation, I'd be so focused on taking the history and doing the examination. And then, then on reflection, I think I was too fast making that diagnosis and the, and the drug management plan and various other onward referrals. And as time goes on, I think your empathy changes and you need a bit more time. So long, longer appointments, more frequent appointments. Sorted. No, I thank like the idea much. of more time, but I'm afraid we have less time here. OK, well, look, so thank, thank you very, you very much. much indeed. Thank you for thank coming you. down from Scotland. So, we have very little time left, but Ed talked about an apprenticeship. We have somebody who could be described as an apprentice with us, who is a medical student. What's his, what's his name? Uh, what's his name? I just can't think. Why don't you Does ask him? Does anybody here know him? Can, can, we, can okay. we interrogate him? Can I ask you, young man, what, what is your name? Well, my name is Oscar, but my surname is Lacey Solomars. Oh. Oh. No! Goodness me. Off you go. Oh, wow. uh, hands and off, what, he's all yours. And what, so, uh, what year are you? I've just finished my third year at Edinburgh. And why did you go into medicine? Well, I have seen my mum's diagnosis. I've seen my own health. I've been in and out of Great Ormond Street for about three years um, when I was younger. And I saw just how much of an impact a good doctor or a bad doctor can make on your life. So I thought that if in any way I can go into it and make some people's lives better, that is definitely something I should do. And are they teaching you about bedside manner? Well, I started in COVID, which makes it all a bit trickier. Edinburgh structured so that you have more theory-based in the first couple of years and then more clinical-based, so you spend more time with patients towards the end of your uni career. But throughout the first couple of years, we have had but some... That seems the right way of doing it. Well, it, it depends what you want. Different med schools approach it in different ways. But throughout second year, we had a placement. We didn't see patients very much because... It, it was all with masks, with COVID, but we were taught about different diseases, management, bedside manner, etc. And do you think your generation's attitude, which seems to be changing anyway, socially, generally, not outside medicine, is, does that make a difference? I'd say so, definitely. I think, from my experience, other generations have, it's a bit more of a stiff upper lip attitude that you don't discuss everything as much. However, now I think everyone's talking more about how things make them feel or etc so it, it takes it more holistically you get more of a wide range when you speak to each other about things and I think in a consultation hopefully that would come through as well. And have you had any consultations where at the end you thought oh god I got that cocked up? Well they do examine it as we've spoken about earlier so if <laughs> I have spoken to some people and myself included where you get to the end of it and think I've definitely missed that, haven't I? And what what told you that you had? How did you... What, well, you do... The nature of it, you reflect on it hugely after after an exam, after a consultation, you do think about how it's gone, etc. Mm. So. Where does neurology come in the list of favourite activities? For me personally? Yeah. Well, there's someone, I won't say who, but someone may be slightly pushing me towards neurology. <laughs> but we have a block of neurology throughout second year but it's less interacting with patients but it's not an easy option it's not an easy option but you are you you are shown through specialities throughout the clinical years that i'm about to go through don't listen to your mother (laughs) sorry don't listen to your mother what sort of advice is that that's my advice i think we better draw this to a close very quickly (laughs) 
But let's think about have any of us become a little bit more optimistic and a bit more understanding of how the new neurologists ha- feel themselves and how I, little time they have. I think the old dinosaurs are beyond reform, but I think that the, y- the young people coming through will approach this in a much better way. But it's depressing. Anything you, you can solve it with yeah. is more money. In the end, and that means true. higher taxes. I, I don't think that's entirely true. I think a more flexible system whereby the nurses got a bigger role... Yeah. would be fine i mean actually 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 going to see a doctor in a hospital is an incredibly expensive business for all concerned having a bit more contact on the phone having god help us your consultant's email address which is the most precious thing you can have mm. all of that can make a difference without necessarily spending a lot more money and making the most of all the, 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 the support that you can get not just from the nhs but from charities and other organisations and and yeah. and linking everything up so that, you know it's just terrible if you go to a hospital and there aren't the leaflets that you can read and mm. get advice from out. Well, like so much in life, it seems the solution is, if not obvious, agreed by all the experts, all the people who know, and it still doesn't happen. Yes. But I mean, maybe pushing away it does eventually happen. But I have got a bit more sympathy for doctors just in terms of the time they have to do what they do the time they have to do to to learn stuff and just the idea that somebody said to me when you first diagnose somebody you know that the next next half of the conversation is just a blur it'd be better if they could come back in two weeks time that's true but they can't do anything about that themselves and last year i did a show in the will and a man came up to me and said i was diagnosed five days ago and you have just stopped me worrying I mean, I found that very moving, and but also worrying, because if I hadn't been there, he would have just gone on worrying. And I hope that we, yes. as a group, actually stop people worrying. Yeah. Because well, we should push for this somehow. I'm diagnosing Parkinson's. I mean, it's not a death sentence. No. It's, it's a life future. sentence, and we need to make it an open prison. Oh, very good. You've been listening to Movers and Shakers with me, Rory Kathleen-Jones, and my friends Gillian Lacey-Solomar, Mark Mardell, Paul Mayhew-Archer, Nicholas Mostyn and Jeremy Paxman. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Poddo. Our theme music is by Alex Stobbs and cover artwork by Till Lukat. Thanks again to Boardwave for their support. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app and do rate and review if you've enjoyed the show. We're also on Twitter, at MoversAnd6, that's Movers and the number six. So please share the show there, and email any thoughts or questions to feedback at moversandshakerspodcast.com. See you next week.